Well, it was mid-2009 when my family and I moved to Lethbridge from Calgary. And one of the things that Natalie and I were excited about uh, when we moved to Lethbridge was becoming homeowners for the very first time. Our, our house that we had just bought was, was in the process of being built. It was a brand new home. And it was a little two-story house that we thought would be perfect for our little family of four at the time. And uh, it wasn't anything, anything glamorous. It was pretty standard. Uh, there was, it was, we just felt like it was exactly what we needed to meet our needs. At the time, we couldn't afford to, to pay the, 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 the builder to develop the basement. So, uh, so over the next couple of years, Natalie and I, we began to, to, to have this, this in, in our mind that as we were going to buy this house. And over the next few years, we were going to develop this house. Now, this house, um, in the basement itself, before we did anything with it, it was framed. It had the, the, the basic framing. It had a sump pump because the water level was, uh, the, the water table was pretty high where the house was built. But that was it. It was, it was bare bones in the basement. And so over the next couple of years, uh, my, my wife and I, Natalie, we began to, to take efforts to begin to, to transform this basement. And so uh, there was a guy in our church who, who helped me do the framing. We framed out all the rooms. There's another guy in our church, he was an electrician, and he and I ran all the electrical wiring. My dad used to be a plumber, so he and I did all the plumbing. And there was very few things that we actually hired out other people to do. And, and in many ways, uh, after two years, Natalie and I could look back at this basement and see the fruit of our efforts and our labor and be proud of what we had accomplished. And, uh, and so we were, we were pleased at how this, this room, this basement had transformed based on what we had done. Fast forward a couple of months once the basement had been fully developed. And uh, in, a, in Lethbridge, we got hit with a pretty significant rainstorm. Now, this rainstorm was like the kind of like biblical proportions that you felt like you maybe needed to Google how to build an ark. It was, it was that intense. And it seemed like over the next days, weeks, that it just the rain would never stop. And it was just that hard, pounding rain that with the wind and the hail and, and lightning, it just felt like this, this was, you know, this was the end times. Thankfully, we lived in this brand new house where we knew that the, the, the shingles would hold and there would be no leaks through the roof. We, we felt like the seals around the windows would hold and there would be no issues. Well, over the course of several days, I began to think, you know, I haven't been in the basement for a while. I just, just want to just check the window wells, make sure everything is okay there. There's no problems. And so as I went downstairs, I, I got to the bottom level and put my foot down. Squish. Second foot, worse. Squish. So I went to the window well number one and began to check to see whether it was leaking from the window well. No, it was dry. I went to window well number two and three. No, they were dry. So I figured, okay, I'm going to check out the sump pump because maybe that's the problem. And so I opened the door underneath the stairs where the sump pump was located. And there it was. Two inches of water greeting me at the, underneath the stairs where the sump pump was supposed to be doing its job. And what I discovered was that at some point over the course of the two years that we had lived there, this newly installed, this perfectly brand new sump pump had been unplugged from the wall. And even though this sump pump was exactly where it needed to be, it was unable to do what it was designed to do because it wasn't plugged into the, its source of power. That's kind of like how life goes, though, isn't it? where it seems like everything is under control, life is figured out, there's no stress, no worries. You've done everything the right way. 
In fact, you've been good to your spouse and your kids. You've worked hard at your job. You've helped at the church. You've been wise with your money. And something happens and everything goes sideways. Well, the title of this sermon this morning is called, What Happens When Bad Things Happen? And that's where we find Job, the central character of our study over the next three weeks, as we consider the next piece of armor within our Armor of God series, the Breastplate of Righteousness. Job chapter 1 says this, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job, does, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Most of us, at one point or another, have had to wrestle with the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? For most of us, we ask these questions while the bad things are happening in our lives or they're happening in someone's else, someone else's life. And usually we ask that question when it's coming from a place of hurt or disappointment. And these why questions that we ask are often personal. Why do I have so much debt? Why do I have this illness? Why do things like COVID-19 happen? Why is my boss so miserable to work with? Why is life so difficult? And we aren't usually asking these questions from a place of objectivity, but instead it's usually a place of accusation. Where we ask these questions in an effort to reconcile the truth that we believe about God with what we're experiencing in the storms of life. Job's situation isn't that much different. Job is one of these guys who's got it all together. He's got a big family. He's got 10 beautiful kids, a beautiful wife, lots of property, lots of livestock, employees. I mean, he has got it all. He's got the respect of the nation. And he didn't have to sell his soul and compromise his character to get it. He was someone who achieved his success the right way. Yet Job's life was filled with tragedy and heartbreak. And we see in this passage that, that Job's story is, a, is the very definition of a terrible, horrible, very bad, no good day. And out of the blue, we see in chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, first of all, one of Job's servants comes with a message. 
that a bunch of his livestock and servants have either been killed or stolen by a rivaling nation, the Sabians. And before that, before that servant can finish his sentence, another servant comes and says, a firestorm has happened and, and has wiped out more of your flock. And before that servant is finished, yet another servant comes and says, even more of your servants and your, and, and your, your livestock have been, have been taken by the Chaldeans. His entire livelihood has been taken from him. At, one, at, at this point, all of his servants, all of his livestock, his financial stability have been wiped out. Literally, the flock market has crashed. Then as Job is processing this devastation and how this will affect him economically, he gets yet a fourth servant. I'd stop answering the door at this point. He gets a fourth servant that comes in with the message that his kids were probably at a birthday party. All ten of them. We get a hint that they were all together in verse 4. That all seven of his sons and his three daughters were together. And there was a, a windstorm that came, probably a tornado. And it leveled the house and killed all ten of his kids. That's just chapter 1. The second chapter gets worse. Now we don't get an idea of the timeline between Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. But the next thing we discover in, in verse, verse 7 of chapter 2 is that, that Job is now inflicted with all kinds of painful sores from his, ted, his, from his head to his feet. So now he's grieving emotionally. He's physically in pain. And his wife, Mrs. Job, she clearly doesn't have the gift of empathy or compassion. Instead, she responds to, to, to her husband's grief and pain with these words of, care are you still maintaining your integrity just curse god and die not exactly the type of empathy that you would want to hear in the deep in, in, the, in the throes of deep emotional and physical trauma job's response though to his wife in chapter 2 verse 10 is this mrs job you're talking like a foolish woman Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And it's in this response that we see evidence that Job is someone who completely trusts in God and desires to please him in spite of his circumstances. It's his trust in God that allowed him to respond to the bad things that happened in his life the way that he did. The defining characteristic that God seems to identify in Job before, during, and after these terrible events in his life is his righteousness. Job chapter 1, verse 1, and then in verse 8, God says, there's no one on earth like Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He's a man who fears God. He shuns evil. Now the first word God uses to describe Job is the word blameless. And we see this word throughout the Old Testament in the, in the Hebrew. And we see it in a variety of different contexts. But it's in Job that we see it the most frequently. It, it, just, it just basically means someone who's completely and morally innocent and pure. Someone who, who is someone with integrity. Now the other word God uses here is the word upright. In Hebrew, that word is yashar. It just means someone who is just or proper. Someone whose life is correct. He just, he's just a good man. So Job is someone with integrity and whose character is morally excellent. In the eyes of God, the main characteristic 
that God affirms in Job isn't the size of his, of his crops. It isn't his possessions or his family. It's not even his marriage or his kids. The quality that God affirms first in Job is his character. It's his righteousness. Now, righteousness could be defined as a life that is pleasing to God. I'm going to say that again. That righteousness is a life that is pleasing to God. God knew that regardless of whether good things or bad things happened to Job, that Job's character wouldn't falter. That Job would still live a life that is pleasing to God. That unlike my sump pump, Job wouldn't be overwhelmed by the storm he was about to experience. Job lived a life that was pleasing to God because he and God were connected. And out of that, Job found strength from God. Now often, usually for many of us, when bad things happen, the first question we ask is, why? Why did this happen to me? Why would you put this on me, God? Admittedly, that question usually just ends up in guesswork. And we ended up just spiraling around in unanswerable questions. Typically, the why question is actually just looking for ways to deflect blame and and anger and hurt. And when you're in the midst of the bad things, when you're hurting, when you're disappointed, when you're you're broken, any target will work to blame someone or something for why it's happening. And we actually see evidence of this in the book of Job, where after everything has transpired in Job's life in the first two chapters, Job's friends show up. And, they, and he, they begin to try and process with Job and try, try to understand. And how they, his friends try to respond, react, to recognize what God is doing in Job's life. And so we begin to read in the book of Job and spend the bulk of his book trying to answer the why question according to his friends. Now in Job's case, his friends concluded that it's probably because something that Job has done. That somewhere along the line, Job has done something to displease God, and now Job is reaping what he has sowed. But I think Job begins to show us another way. Another way to process what God is doing in the midst of the bad things. What if instead of directing our hurt onto blaming someone or something and spiraling down a path of unanswerable questions... What if we chose a different path that actually began to move us forward? What if we began to ask, how should I respond when bad things happen? When we ask the question, how do we respond when bad things happen? The first thing it does is it recognizes that hurt has happened to us, that it exists. We don't minimize it. It validates it, actually. It doesn't deny it. It doesn't minimize it. It says, this has happened. But now instead of sitting in that hurt, we begin to move through that hurt so that we can begin to advance forward. In Ephesians 6, Paul, he uses the imagery of a Roman soldier to connect that idea, that understanding of the armor of God. Specifically as we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness. And this is important. Because a soldier wouldn't stand in the middle of a battlefield while arrows are being shot at him and ask, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why are they shooting arrows at me? Instead, the natural question for the soldier is how am I going to respond when the the arrows start to fly? How am I going to respond when the attacks happen? 
Because the soldier at this point understands that the attacks will happen. But that advancing doesn't stop. So Paul says, first of all, put on the belt of truth. And after that, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate of righteousness, it serves two primary functions. It was positional and it's practical. In the same way that if a sump pump was positioned in the right spot, but if it's not plugged in, it doesn't serve its purpose. And if it's plugged in, but if it's in the attic, it's still just as ineffective. It's both positional and practical. This morning, though, we're going to talk about the positional function of the breastplate of righteousness. See, we, we see throughout the book of Job how to put on the breastplate of righteousness in the midst of the storms. A Roman soldier wouldn't fling off his breastplate as arrows are flying at him and say, they're shooting at me. He wouldn't abandon his protection entirely. Instead, the soldier wears it, believing that it would protect him. You see, when a Roman soldier wore his breastplate, it was often made of steel or bronze. And it covered everything from his shoulders to about his thighs. And it was worn to protect their duodenum and other vital organs of a soldier, especially the heart. So that when an attack finally came, they weren't vulnerable to a life-threatening attack. They wore it to protect their hearts. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 6 that anyone who aligns themselves with Jesus is fighting a battle too. The battle is against Satan. The book of Job, in many ways, is a how-to manual for you and I to understand how do we wear the breastplate of righteousness? How do we make sure that it protects our hearts in the midst of a spiritual battle that is happening around us and, and, and against us? How do we please God and protect our hearts in the midst of the battle? And what we see from Job is that righteousness impacted the way that he lived his life and the way that he approached the storms in his life too. Righteousness influenced his heart, and out of that, righteous actions began to follow. Positional righteousness is this idea of aligning ourselves to the will of God, conforming our attitudes, our thoughts, our perspectives with God's. And when we do that, God is pleased. Now, the distinction between Christianity and other religions is that most religions exist around the premise that, if, that you and I achieve our own rightness before God. Or conversely, our own wrongness before God. Most of those religions claim that by performing the correct rituals and rites and ceremonies, that you will have somehow satisfied and pleased God. In essence, you have now manufactured your own righteousness based on something that you have accomplished or done. And this is where Job's friends are finding themselves when they confront Job where it seems obvious to them that God is displeased with something that Job has done. Contextually, Job's friends are working under the premise that if you do enough good things, then God will do good things to you. If you do bad things, then God will do bad things to you. And they're thinking that righteousness, God's pleasure, is entirely works, is de- works dependent. Job had his kids, his household, his possessions, his health, all taken away. So in his friends' minds, they're thinking the common denominator here is who? Job. Job is the problem. He either hasn't done enough good works, 
where he has some sort of sin in his life that God is now punishing him for. Job, though, godly man, responds in chapter 9 with this question. How can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Essentially what Job is asking here is how can any of us do enough good things to please God? How can I please God based on the things that I've done? See, Job understands who God is. There's something inherently self-reflective in this question. Where I think that Job understands that universally this idea of positional righteousness has nothing to do with you and I doing the right things to please God. That positional righteousness isn't something that we can achieve on our own with our best efforts. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 says this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done. Let me say it again. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I think this verse tells us two critical things about righteousness. One, that not only can we not achieve righteousness based on our own actions, but that we actually do the opposite that we actually make ourselves unrighteous. We actually separate ourselves from what's right because of our thoughts and attitudes and actions. The second is this, that real, true righteousness is through Jesus Christ, not not through anything else that we do, because of what Jesus did. It's through Jesus' righteousness that you and I are made righteous. In the same way that a sump pump works because it's connected to a power source. You and I are made righteous through our connection with Jesus. Also, like my sump pump, it doesn't take much to get disconnected from Jesus as well. The Bible says that because God cannot tolerate sin, that all it took was one sin and humanity was all disconnected from God. See, a perfect, holy God cannot be in the presence of sin, and as a result, our sin displeases God. So instead of being positionally with God, our sin has positionally separated us from God. But instead of being disconnected for eternity, being unrighteous forever, Jesus came to reestablish that disconnection that our sin created. That even though God is displeased with our sin choices, His love for us restores and reconciles the relationship that our sin divided. The Bible tells us that the only way that that disconnection could be reestablished is through payment of our sin. Jesus was the full payment of death so that we wouldn't have to. It's through the payment of Christ's death that Jesus takes his perfect sinless righteousness and graciously offers it to you and I. 
When we accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, we actually begin to affirm the belt of truth that Jesus has filled the gap that made you and I unrighteous. Philippians chapter 3, 8 through 11, Paul writes these words. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes with, from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We are viewed as righteous in the eyes of God when we receive Jesus by faith. Our righteousness is based on what Jesus did on the cross. The righteousness that was Christ is given to us now. And we then are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. As a result, we spend eternity in the presence of the holy, pure, loving, kind, gentle, and righteous God. So when we go through the bad things of life, when the storms come, we know that God is now with us because we are part of, because he has died for us. The breastplate of righteousness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 is actually a gift that Jesus gives to us. And he invites us to try it on. He invites us to discover the pleasure of God, to discover how his righteousness actually feels over us. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Boy, that sounds like a lot of hope for someone like Job, who has had everything taken away. And Isaiah is reminding us that the invitation to receive God's righteousness has a cost, but that the payment has already been made. Instead, it's a gift to each of us. It's available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. It's not dependent on what you've done or what you haven't done in your past. It is a gift. Now this morning, there might be some of us here or watching online who are going through our own storms. Some of us who are maybe asking these big questions like, why are these bad things happening? Or why are these bad things happening specifically to me? This morning, can I invite you to reframe the, the question? Can I invite you to ask this question instead as we all go through the bad things of life? How can I please you, Jesus? See, it's in that question, it's in that response when we go through bad things. It's when we ask that question that actually helps us to protect our hearts. It's when we ask that question that we actually begin to put on the breastplate of righteousness over us. So that it guards us against the effects of the hurt and the pain and the disappointment that the storms often bring. The reality is, is that the storms won't go away. The battle doesn't stop just because the, the soldier says, stop shooting at me. Even when it's painful or uncomfortable, the battle still continues. The storm, even if I had plugged in the sump pump, the rain would still continue to fall. Mother Teresa was once asked the, this question, why, 
why God allows bad things to happen to good people. And she responded with this. Such a simple statement. I'm not sure why bad things happen to good people. But I choose to trust God. I'm not sure why bad things happen to good people. But I choose to trust God. When we put on the righteousness of Christ, it changes the conversation. The conversation now shifts. We begin to experience comfort. We begin to experience peace. We begin to find strength in the truth of who Jesus is. And we discover the righteousness that Jesus is with us. Just like it did with Job. Look at Job. His world was perfect. Everything was going the way that he dreamt it would. And then one storm after another after another started to strip all of these different things away. None of us will be excluded. And there will be times where it will seem unfair. There's times where it will seem unjust. And sometimes the temptation will be to try to manage the storms on our own. Sometimes the temptation will be to run from the storm or blame someone else or just blame God. Instead, Paul reminds us and Job shows us how we can put on the righteousness of God in the storms when the bad things happen. When the storm comes, And everything is stripped away. We discover that with the breastplate of righteousness, that Jesus will be there standing with you, protecting your heart. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up and close our time in prayer. Lord, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you continue to help us to keep our eyes on you, Jesus. God, we desire to, to bring glory to you. And admittedly, there are times when the bad things happen in life, when the storms happen, we don't often know how to respond. How do we react in that? How do we process what you are doing in it? Lord, would you give us the courage? Would you give us the peace? Would you give us the confidence to know that we can actually begin to to move forward? We can advance forward in your kingdom in spite of the storms of life. Jesus, we know that you love us. You died for us. that's, That's enough evidence there. Yet you continue to walk with us. You continue to make yourself available to us. And your grace abounds every day, Jesus. Lord, we recognize that when everything is stripped away, that it's all about you. So, God, we worship you, Jesus. 